Welcome to the Congress of Neurological Surgeon podcast. My name is Dr. Martina Stippler, and I'm proud to host today the podcast on the paper, the Berlin International Consensus Meeting on Concussion in Sport. We have Dr. Gavin Davis, a neurosurgeon from Australia. He works at the Caprini and the Austin Medical Center. He is the lead author of this paper. We have um, Dr. Laura Neguenia, a neurotrauma director of the University of Cincinnati as faculty member. And we have two of our CNS fellows, Dr. Dosani from uh, Health Science Center in Shreveport and Dr. Rohatki from Penn State Medical Center. So with this introduction, I'd like Dr. Davis to go ahead and give a summary of the process in the paper itself. Well, thank you. This paper arose following the Fifth International Conference on Concussion in Sport. The Concussion in Sport group, the CISG, um, has been meeting every Olympic year, the Summer Olympic year, um, since uh, the first meeting, which was in 2001 in Vienna, and we meet in a different European city each time. The Concussion in Sport group is made up of a very broad group of um, multidisciplinary individuals from neurology, neurosurgery, sports medicine, neuropsychology, psychology, rehabilitation, physiotherapy, biomechanics. Everybody uh, is there. Over the years, the number of neurosurgeons on the panel has waxed and waned somewhat. And the reason for publishing this article in neurosurgery is that all the outcome papers from the meeting have been published in the sports medicine literature. And given that neurosurgeons are consulted on head injuries on a regular basis, it's important that neurosurgeons, A, are kept up to date about the latest progress in concussion management, but also take an active interest in participating in the process because we don't want concussion to fall away from the neurosurgical spectrum and be taken over by the completely by the sports medicine field. The paper itself that was published in neurosurgery outlines the background to the concussion sport group and the process involved in this meeting, which was the fifth concussion in sport meeting. The group itself is supported by the International Ice Hockey Federation, FIFA, the International Olympic Committee, World Rugby, and the Federation Equestrian International. The process for developing the meeting was quite lengthy and complex. In simple terms, a, an expert panel was formed and then a Delphi technique was used to create 12 main questions. Each of those questions then became the topic of a systematic review. So the lead authors for each of those systematic reviews then put together a panel of experts who then performed the formal systematic review to address each of the 12 questions, along with a series of submitted abstracts from participants at the meeting. The meeting itself was a combination of the presentation of the 12 systematic reviews, the abstracts, and all the poster presentations. That was all done over a two-day period. On the third day, the expert panel then convened and took all the information from the systematic reviews and all the questions and feedback during the open meeting. And from that, we formed the consensus statement on concussion in sport. I'll talk about the consensus statement in a moment. 
The fourth day of the meeting was then devoted the, to the concussion tools. There are three major tools that came out of the meeting. The first is the SCAT-5, the Sports Concussion Assessment Tool, Edition 5. The second is the child version of the SCAT-5. And the third is the Concussion Recognition Tool, CRT. The two SCAT forms are designed for medical personnel to assist in the diagnosis and assessment of concussion whereas the CRT is designed specifically for the lay person, giving advice on how to recognise concussion. If any symptoms or signs manifest in an individual that are listed on the card, then the card basically states that the child or the adult requires medical attention and removal from play. The consensus statement itself is a very lengthy document that tries to highlight the key findings of the 12 systematic reviews and put it into context for someone managing sports concussion. The consensus statement this year was written slightly differently from last year's consensus statement, in, or sorry, the one four years ago, I should say, in that it was summarised in the form of what's called 11 R's, as in the letter R. And the 11 R's are recognise, remove, reevaluate, rest, rehabilitation, refer, recover, return to sport, reconsider, residual effects and sequelae, and risk reduction. And the consensus paper talks about each of those uh, R items, and it's been written in a style whereby anything that's new since the previous consensus statement is highlighted in italic font so that someone who's familiar with the previous iterations of the consensus statement can just look at the uh, italicised font to see what's new. Someone who's not familiar with the previous iterations can easily read the whole document. The document is an overview of concussion in sport. It's not considered to be a textbook on concussion, um, but it integrates the information from the 12 systematic reviews and anyone who wants more information is advised to read the relevant systematic review uh, for that particular topic. Part of the brief in writing the systematic reviews was to focus on concussion in sport and exclude non-sports concussion and to look at the literature in a scientific fashion, uh, as one should do in a formal systematic review following the um, PRISMA guidelines. And at the end of each systematic review, the expert panel was asked to make recommendations to the CISG based on the findings of the systematic review. The systematic reviews themselves are very lengthy, very detailed, and we actually ended up reviewing in total approximately 60,000 papers. Of those 60,000 papers, a large percentage didn't meet inclusion criteria. But once it was all whittled down, we took the best available evidence uh, from the literature to come up with the final recommendations. The systematic reviews covered a very broad range of questions. And some of the questions that were covered, you would consider as something that should already be well established, such as what is the definition of concussion. But in actual fact, the definition is one of the hardest things to, 
to confirm. And to this day, we don't have a very good definition. It's a working definition, but it's not scientific from the point of view that we don't have a biomarker of concussion. So a lot of the work that we do in concussion is based on best available evidence in the absence of a biomarker. Some of the other systematic reviews looked at topics such as sideline screening, the SCAT itself, what domains of clinical function do we assess with regard to cognitive, somatic, ocular motor, etc. We looked at what other tests can be used such as neuroimaging and biomarkers. We looked at treatment interventions as modifying the outcome from concussion. We looked at the physiological versus the symptomatic time course of concussion. We looked at the modifiers of concussion, the difference in children compared to adults. How do we manage persistent post-concussive symptoms? We looked at the long-term risks from concussion and is there a link between concussion and CTE? And we also looked at how can you reduce the risk of concussion in sport? So it's a very broad range of topics that we explored. And we could almost do a podcast on each one on its own, but um, I know that the panel today has a series of questions they wish to address, so I might stop there and focus on your questions. Well, thank you very much for this summary. Dr. Nguenya, if you please uh, lead with your first question. Sure. This, this article is, is a great article that's needed in the neurosurgery literature because we often think about concussion as a non-surgical entity. Uh, what, what do you feel should be the role of neurosurgeons in the acute management of concussion? There are a couple of reasons that we wrote this paper. One is we want to make sure that this is in the neurosurgical literature, not only in the sports medicine literature. And the flow on of that is to encourage neurosurgeons to be part of the story. We manage severe head injury, and, and that's our role. But I'm sure in most of your institutions, same as my institution, that People with mild head injury, as soon as they have a CT scan that excludes any intracranial pathology, neurosurgeons tend not to be asked to be involved. And it can go off to physicians and sports medicine practitioners and all manner of people. But it's important that neurosurgeons are actively involved because we actually understand the consequences of head injury and that whilst there are some lesions that we can identify on imaging, some of the consequences you cannot identify in imaging. And it's also important that, neuros that neurosurgeons are involved and are encouraging other people to consult with neurosurgeons because occasionally there's evolution of pathology. And whilst the person may be well initially, subsequent development of uh, hemorrhage or seizures is something that's the realm and domain of, of neurosurgeons. So my key point is that neurosurgeons should be involved and should actively manage these patients but also be involved in the development of protocols. Furthermore, for example, one of the roles that we have as neurosurgeons on the committee is that there was a push by the sports medicine people to remove the Glasgow Coma Scale from the SCAT-5 and that was something that I was very adamant must be maintained because it's to remind people that whilst most concussions are mild and do not progress to severe injuries, often the concussion might be the first manifestation of someone developing an epidural hematoma. So it's very critical that sports medicine people continue to use the Glasgow Coma Score in addition to the other point that we maintain on the SCAT-5, which is cervical spine assessment and reminding people that concussion can be associated with concomitant cervical spine injury. 
there's a lot of crossover between sports medicine and neurosurgery, and for that reason, we need to maintain an active interest. Great, thank you. What do you feel are the key features that make sports-related concussion different from other types of concussion? So there's a few things that differentiate sports concussion from general, general concussion, for want of a better term. The first thing is you're dealing with athletes, and at the elite level, you're dealing with people who are somewhat precious. Sport to them is everything. And when you remove an athlete from the field of play and tell them that they cannot return until they have fully recovered, which may be a week or it might be a few months in certain situations, there is that withdrawal process from their sport and there is a strong sense of letting themselves down, letting the coach down, letting the team down and there's also the impact it may have on someone who is about to be drafted into an elite competition and it may cost them their position on the draft or in the team. You don't have that same sense of loss in other forms of concussion. At the other end of the spectrum, if we compare, for example, someone who sustains a concussion in a motor vehicle accident, a child in a motor vehicle accident may have a concussion, their parent may have been driving, the parent may have been severely injured or even killed. That child will then have manifestations from the car accident with post-traumatic stress disorder, depression relating to loss in the accident. And that's different from the manifestations of concussion on the sports field. So you have to look at the circumstance in which the concussion occurred as to what the flow-on effects are. There are many symptoms in the post-concussion symptom scale that are very similar to depression symptoms and it's very important that the concussion assessment can differentiate symptoms of pure concussion versus symptoms of reactionary depression. Okay, thank, thank you. My, uh, my last question, from the findings of the consensus meeting, going through all the research and looking at all the evidence that we currently have, what do you think is the most important aspect of sports-related concussion that would benefit from, from additional future research? A good question, and I wish there was a single answer, but it's actually, if you look at each of the 12 systematic reviews, every single one of them remains an open-ended area of research. We still need a clear definition of concussion. We still need to know what the most important symptoms are that predict outcome. We still need to know what are the best sideline assessment tools. We still need to know how do you pick the individual who has a very mild head knock and is going to have no complications from that from the person who has the similar biomechanical head knock and yet has symptoms for weeks or months. We want to know how do we pick which person is going to have long-term sequelae concussion. We want to identify biomarkers, look at the role of MRI and other forms of imaging. We want to know how to assess children in the different age groups, the preschool, school age, teenage years from the college students. And there's evidence that each age group has specific issues. So when we look at the whole spectrum of concussion from definition, diagnosis, management and outcomes, there's a lot of the questions that remain unanswered. We've answered a lot in the concussion in sport meeting, but equally we, there's many areas that require a lot of ongoing research. So anyone that enters the concussion sphere from a neurosurgical research perspective, they're not going to be short of questions to explore. Okay, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Nguyenya, for uh, answering this question, for, uh, for you, Dr. Davis, to answer them. Can I ask those, uh, Dr. Dosani, uh, please bring forward one question? Yes, uh, 
I think we all agree that uh, it's important for neurosurgeons to be involved with uh, sports-related concussions. I wanted to ask you, which factors do you think are the most crucial in determining when an athlete with sport-related concussion may return to play or work? The critical thing in determining when you can return to school, work and play is that you must have demonstrated complete resolution of all symptoms and signs. This comes back to the question of how do we evaluate the person with concussion. And there are multiple domains that are affected in the cognitive, somatic, ocular, motor, sleep, vestibular, cervical, etc. One of the problems we do have is some people and some organisations are pushing for example, electronic computerized cognitive assessment as the tool to assess concussion. Tools like that are excellent at screening cognitive function, but they won't tell you anything about ocular motor function, balance, cervical spine, etc. So it's critical that the person assessing the athlete with concussion assesses the athlete in all relevant domains. The second thing is looking at what the person is going back to. So for example, the child who is at school, the priority is to get that child back to school before we get them back to sport. If a child can't successfully return to learning without exacerbation of symptoms, they definitely should not be returning to sport. So in children and adolescents, our priority is to get them back to learning first and once they have successfully completed that and remain completely asymptomatic without exacerbation of symptoms, then they can return to contact sport. In the elite athlete, it's somewhat different where their work is their sport, in which case they have to follow the graduated return to play uh, paradigm very carefully. One of the areas that's new in the current version of the statement is that previously we have stated that the athlete should remain at rest both cognitive and physically until asymptomatically, until they are asymptomatic. What we say now, based on the evidence, is that a very brief period of rest is suitable in the first 24 to 48 hours following concussion. Following that, moderate exercise is important. So it follows that the simple way I explain it to patients is we don't want them to do nothing and we don't want them to do too much. We need them to have a little bit of activity just to get the heart rate up a little bit and they can do that as long as it doesn't exacerbate symptoms. They may have baseline symptoms. As long as the exercise doesn't exacerbate those baseline symptoms, they can continue with that paradigm until the baseline symptoms resolve. Once the symptoms resolve, then they progress up the next step of the graduated return to play paradigm. So from the return to play program, the key difference is early mild to moderate exercise without prolonged rest, and then we accept mild symptoms during that time as long as they are not exacerbated by the exercise. But return to full play does not occur until the athlete is asymptomatic at both rest and post-exertion. And they have to be asymptomatic in all the domains I mentioned earlier. Very good. And uh, Dr. Rohatki, would you mind answering, answer, asking one more question to finish up our podcast, please? Thanks, Dr. Davis, for taking the time to speak with us. One question I had as a neurosurgeon is, when do we counsel families and patients who've had children in concussions when they should come to see kind of subspecialist care within the neurosurgery or neurology or sports medicine community versus continuing following along with their family provider. 
And on the flip side of that, what's kind of our obligation, or not obligation, so to say, but um, kind of role in helping their care along? Thank you. One of the key differences that the systematic review identified in children compared to adults is that children take longer to recover than adults. So in adults, we define the expected time to recovery of approximately uh, seven to 10 days, up to two weeks. Whereas in children, up to four weeks can be the norm. So in our personal series in Melbourne, we find that about 70% of children have recovered completely by four weeks, but that means that 30% of children haven't recovered by four weeks. So for the child being assessed by the family physician, if they recover quickly within a couple of weeks, and they're completely asymptomatic at both rest and post-exertion, then there's no need to refer to a neurosurgeon or neurologist at that time. However, the child who has prolonged symptoms should be referred. Equally, the child who has a very high symptom load, and by that we mean, if you look at the SCAT-5, there are 20 symptoms listed, and each symptom you score between zero and six. If the child has a score of five or six for multiple of these symptoms, they've got a very high symptom load, and that can be a concern and may require referral to a specialist. The other groups that I worry about are the people who have multiple concussions in succession, people who have concussions with very low uh, impact force, or people who have a history of concussion where each successive concussion is resulting in a longer period of symptom, um, a, a longer symptom period. So if you have a concussion the first time and you settle in a week, the next concussion you settle in three weeks, the next concussion it takes you three months, those children or even adults require specialist assessment. So they're sort of the red flags that I use looking at the force, the symptom load, the frequency, the recovery period within the athlete over a period of time, which is why very important to take a concussion history. And if there's any of those red flags, they should be seen by a specialist. And usually a concussion specialist, be it a neurosurgeon or neurologist, will not work in isolation, but will work in collaboration with a vestibular physiotherapist and with a neuropsychologist uh, and with a clinical psychologist as required. It really is a multidisciplinary treatment, just as so many other facets of neurosurgery are. I hope that answers your question. That does wonderfully. Thank you. Dr. Davis, this is Dr. Martina Stupla. I have one question uh, for you as we finish up this podcast. What do you think of the future lays in, uh, in concussion diagnostics? I think if you lo look, people that were injured at work are 10 times more symptomatic than people get injured for in recreational activity. So there's this whole, it's not objective how we make diagnosis in concussion. Could you comment on that, and where do you think, is there anything in the future on the horizon that would help us to diagnose people with concussion in a more objective way? If I interpret your question correctly, you're looking at what technologies or markers we can use to diagnose beyond the symptom checklist. And there is so much work happening at the moment looking at MRI, functional MRI, looking at 
saliva and blood biomarkers, looking at accelerometers, helmet technology, looking at video technology. All these tools are in the process of research and they're all very useful as research tools. As yet, none has demonstrated any consistency across studies to suggest that they should be translated into the clinical sphere rather than remaining in the, the research sphere. There's a lot of media hype about helmet-based accelerometer technology. The problem is that an acceleration in a particular direction, be it linear or rotational, in one individual may result in significant concussion, yet in a similar individual they may be asymptomatic. Some people require 70 Gs of concussion in a linear direction to generate concussion. Other people may require 180 G force in linear direction for concussion. So there's so much variability between individuals. How much of that is due to the mechanics of the individual's head and neck, how much is due to ratio of CSF brain volumes to cranial cavity differences in shape, how much is due to genetic differences at the microcellular level. These remain open-ended questions. So we are exploring all of these technologies, but as yet, I'm not a betting person, but if I was, I wouldn't know where to place my money with regard to which technology is going to ultimately become the clinical marker. Maybe it'll be a combination of technologies, but we're still a long way off that at the moment. So at the moment, the best thing we have is the clinical judgment of the expert. Uh, at the sideline, the expert's normally a physician, um, but neurosurgeons, as I said, can be consulted for the more, usually for the more complicated patients. Dr. Davis, I want to thank you for answering our, our questions and giving us such a nice and thorough summary of the work you did. Um, I want to thank uh, our faculty, Laura, Dr. Nguenia, and our CNS fellows. And this con concludes the Congress of Neurological Surgeons podcast.